0: Good afternoon everybody and welcome to the last in this series of three lectures on English landscape, um, more particularly the evolving personality of English landscape as constructed by the um, writers and artists of the 19th century. That first strange word in my title I will explain a little bit later. But this is on Samuel Palmer and English Pastoral. Uh, English Pastoral, by far the most lovely department of painting as well as of poetry, said John Constable. And I'm going to be starting with uh, um, English Pastoral. Um, This is a, a sketch of the... Uh, tradition, main points in the tradition of English pastoral, a somewhat contested genre, um, as a way of um, approaching uh, Samuel Palmer's particular contribution to pastoral imagery in painting. And the first part will cover a lot of ground and go fairly fairly rapidly, and then we can take a breather, and in the last part, loiter at leisure in palmers, dells, and nooks and corners of paradise. In the middle of one of the most harrowing wars in human history, this scene of a quiet southern English landscape was published and widely propagated. The year was 1942. The poster's relationship between its words and imagery is disconcerting the undulating sparsely populated countryside emanates tranquility. While the superimposed text is a call to arms. The emotional jarring was designed to boost wartime recruitment in a bid to save the precious country that was identified directly with its countryside. The artist, Frank Newbold, amalgamates a number of iconic English landscape features. As his recessional diagonal planes lap across each other towards the horizon's slip of sea, he gives us in succession, pasture, shelving woodland, bright arable fields, and uncultivated downland. He juxtaposes snug shelter in the embowered human dwelling and liberating exposure In the grand rolling fields and downs. In the valley, he dramatizes the dells and nooks and corners, so cherished by Samuel Palmer, and up by the cliff tops, the freshness of vast open spaces on the edge of England. This combination, in one view, of great stretches of sunlit open land and snug embowered dwelling is a familiar formula. It's key, I think, for example, to the appeal of what is probably England's most popular landscape painting, Constable's Haywain, which combines the old tree-shaded cottage on the left and the sun-drenched cornfields on the far side of the mill stream, stretching away to the horizon. Newbold's scene is identified in small print as the South Downs. But this landscape stands for the whole of Britain. He based the middle distance and background on an actual Sussex landscape on the South Downs near Burling Farm down in the Dell and the Bell Toot Lighthouse up on the Seven Sisters. However, the diagonal foreground field with the shepherd and his dog is based on a contemporary times photograph of a scene elsewhere, possibly near Lewis. I don't think it's been identified precisely. The splicing together of the two different landscapes strengthens both theme and composition. It conveys a sense of the timeless rural world set in sharp relief from catastrophic convulsions. It has the same kind of resonance as Thomas Hardy's poem written in the middle of World War I, in time of the breaking of nations, which I'll quote just a little. Only a man harrowing clods in a slow, silent walk with an old horse that stumbles and nods half asleep as they stalk. War's annals will cloud into night ere their story die. Life survives at its lowest ebb In these ancient rhythms of working the land, pasturing sheep and cattle, the processes that keep us going. In such visions, deepest England seems unperturbed by seismic violence in the rest of the world. The slow, silent walk of Hardy's ploughman is visually echoed in Newbold's Shepherd on the hillside. This is the essence of pastoral And it's with pastoral that I'm starting as a way of leading into Palmer's distinctive treatment of English landscape and its enchanted pastoral world. The pastoral tradition has always involved a retreat from modern life, from the time of its beginnings in 3rd century BC Sicily in the poems of Theocritus. These pastoral poems are known as idylls, from the Greek idulia, meaning a little form, a short poem. Virgil's eclogues or bucolics around 40 BC became the inspiration for much early modern English pastoral. But the anglicizing of pastoral in literature came up against comparable problems to those experienced by Constable in his struggles against academy classicism in landscape conventions. It's part of that larger emancipatory struggle that we've been tracing in earlier lectures on the evolution of English landscape identity. Here, for example, is one expression near the beginning of the 18th century, expression of impatience with the persistent English veneration of classical models of pastoral. This is Thomas Tickell, writing in 1713. Our countrymen have so good an opinion of the ancients and think so modestly of themselves that the generality of pastoral writers have either stolen all from the Greeks and Romans or so servilely imitated their manners and customs as makes them very ridiculous. How to naturalize pastoral, that's the question. What is proper in Arcadia or even in Italy might be very absurd in a colder country, remarked Tickel. It's like those Doric temple ruins in English gardens or the paintings of Mediterranean pines nodding on the North Wales coastlines. In Alexander Pope's first pastoral Sicilian muses burst into song on the banks of the Thames where two local shepherds improbably called Daphnis and Strephon pine for their shepherdesses. In this battle between the traditionalists and the naturalizing modernizers part of that long-fought battle of the books. Pope had several skirmishes with a fellow poet, one Ambrose Phillips, who had written some much-praised English pastorals in 1708. Joseph Addison in The Spectator claimed, Phillips has given a new life and more natural beauty to this way of writing by substituting, in the place of these antiquated fables of the classical world, the superstitious mythology which prevails among the shepherds of our own country. That's Addison in The Spectator, 1712. Pope, the Virgilian traditionalist, was enraged by this preference and wrote anonymously a deeply ironic appreciation of Philip's modernised and anglicised pastoral and an equally ironic disparagement of his own conventional practices. Thus, instead of his own names, Daphnis and Strephon, he mockingly welcomes Philip's choice of names, quote, peculiar to the country and more agreeable to a reader of delicacy, such as Hobbinol, Lobin, Cuddy, and Colin Clout. And you can sense his nose wrinkling. Pope later rejoiced in the opportunity to nickname Ambrose Phillips Namby Pamby. Near the end of the century, that period of the heyday of the picturesque and its relation to English nationalism, there's little tolerance left for sustaining Virgilian conventions. George Crabbe's lines from his poem, The Village of 1783, makes this clear. Fled are those times, if e'er such times were seen, when rustic poets praised their native green. No shepherds now, in smooth alternate verse, their country's beauty or their nymphs rehearse. Yet still for these, we frame the tender strain. Still in our lays, fond Corridons complain, and shepherds' boys their amorous pains reveal. The only pains, alas, they never feel. Must sleepy bards the flattering dream prolong, mechanic echoes of the Mantuan song. From truth and nature shall we widely stray where Virgil, not where fancy, leads the way. A few voices were raised against this abandonment of Virgil and his idyllic world. The Mantuan song is is a reference to to Virgil, who came from Mantua. One of these voices in opposition was Samuel Palmer's, disgusted by modern dress performances of pastoral, by modernising pastoral. Have Corydon and Thersis, he writes, met in corduroys and Manchester cottons? Yes, say the men of matter, and it is out of the present that the true poet weaves his fable. As far as Palmer was concerned, the, the men of matter were the Philistine materialists of the modern age, impervious to, as well as ideologically hostile to the charms of traditional pastoral. But notwithstanding, Palmer's passionate traditionalism, a modernized pastoral sentiment was perfectly possible. Wordsworth had argued this strenuously in the Prelude and other poems. Shepherds were the men that pleased me first, he recalls of his childhood in the Prelude. Not the Arcadian swains from the classical world or Shakespeare's Forest of Arden, but the modern working Cumberland shepherd, a type of natural stoical nobility. I read a little from the Prelude, book 8, Meanwhile this creature the shepherd spiritual almost as those of books but more exalted far far more of an imaginative form than the gay Corin of the groves who lives for his own fancies or to dance by the hour in coronal with Phyllis in the midst was for the purposes of kind a man with the most common a husband father learned could teach admonish suffered with the rest from vice and folly, wretchedness and fear. Access to the pastoral idyll, or something approximating it by the 19th century, now doesn't entail imaginary excursions to Arcadia. It can be a journey from the modern city to the downland pastures of the painters, or Wordsworth's Cumberland Fells, or Constable's Dedham Vale, or Samuel Palmer's Shoreham Valley. These places local and familiar, mediated by the nature writer, poet, or painter determined to bring pastoral into 19th century England, draw one to the edges of the modern world. From there, the present seems to fuse with the past. The actual veteran shepherd in his remote rural setting represents both a fading way of life and a symbol of endurance, of continuity." The downland shepherd, in particular, here in uh, Inchbold's uh, watercolour, top left, seems to stand for an England and an Englishness that typifies patient tenacity and a parental devotion to his flock. Hence Newbold's choice of him for his wartime poster. He is stoical and yet sensitive, his livelihood reliant both on his own tender and expert care, and yet also on nature's volatile moods. W.H. Hudson, the naturalist, writing in 1900 in his book Nature in Downland, looks back over the later decades of the 19th century, and he saw, through several visits, the Downland shepherd having an apparently inbuilt, or Down's acquired immunity to modernity's affi- afflictions, particularly that, a quote, modern curse or virus of restlessness and dissatisfaction. I quote further from Hudson. I have first and last conversed with a great many shepherds from the lad whose shepherding has just begun to the patriarch who has held a crook and quotes, twitched his mantle blue in the old Corridon way on these hills for upwards of 60 years, and in this respect have found them all very much of one mind. It is as if living alone with nature on these heights, breathing this pure atmosphere, the contagion had not reached them, or else that their blood was proof against such a malady. Well, is this documentary or wishful thinking? There's always been this kind of tension in the pastoral tradition between the social and economic reality of a shepherd's life and the idealized qualities culturally invested in him and his world. And it's this complex amalgamation of myth and social actuality that gave English pastoral in the 19th century, writing and art, such a vigorous life and also made it a core part of the national myth, especially at a time in the country's history when it was industrializing fast and its cities expanding. By the mid-century, mid-19th century, only half the population remained country dwellers. A demographic milestone, France was to reach a full century later. And China, only about six years ago. The more urbanized the population, the more alien the countryside becomes as a working and living environment, and the more that countryside fades into myth and idyll. So images of pastoral solitude in the vast empty spaces of English downland would have had particular force for mid-Victorians caught up in the rapid spread of urbanization and vulnerable to what Matthew Arnold called this strange disease of modern life, It's sick hurry, divided aims, heads are taxed. Some sense of the powerful antithesis between metropolitan and, albeit idealised, pastoral life can be gained by juxtaposing Inchpole's spacious landscape with Gustave Doré's London scene from uh, his book London, A Pilgrimage, 1872, um, a block in the street in Ludgate, it's um, an amalgamation of all sorts of symbols of the old and the old and the new. There's the symbol of the new, the railway, and backing against old St Paul's. And down here, all classes of people are gathered together, the uh, wealth and poverty, life and death side by side. But look what's blocking the street. It's a flock of sheep in the middle of London, pastoral, invading London. They're being presumably driven into Smithfield Market. The rural world was seen as a retreat, a sanctuary. Working life in the country had simplified patterns which obeyed natural time instead of factory clock time. And at the end of the working day, there was the dream of the beckoning homestead, family, shelter and nourishment after a day in the open. This motif was captured near the end of the 19th century in paintings by the Scottish artist, Joseph Farquharson. These pictures remain extraordinarily popular today. I wonder how many recognise this. Uh, Their popularity uh, is particularly seasonal at this time of year. Um, The Christmas card subjects... But their currency, I think, testifies to the persistence of the pastoral ideal combined with this sense of domestic cosiness, the promise of domestic cosiness. The scene is actually north of the border. Farquharson's painting was exhibited at the Royal Academy in 1903. Nearly every year for a quarter of a century, he exhibited his rural snow scenes at the Academy. And the demand... ...for his particular landscapes was such that he executed several copies of this Winter's Day one. Uh, one was sold at auction just a few years ago for nearly £160,000. The scene is both inviting and somewhat forbidding. The radiating lines of the tree shadows on the roseate snow... ...and the converging lines of the sheet draw the viewer towards the foddering farmhand. Man and animals stoically go about their business in the freezing landscape, which the artist has converted into a glowing image of homecoming, as it were the contrary to Inchpol's watercolour, where the shepherd is setting out at the beginning of the day with his flock. At the same time, an intense chill emanates from the landscape. It looks like a moment's pause as the day fades and food and shelter beckon. The scene, in fact, was carefully contrived by the artist. Farquharson arranged to have stuffed model sheep pose for the painting, (laughs) and the farmhand had to stand for quite some time in the snow, while the artist, from within his heated caravan, (laughs) set about painting the scene through his window. As a Christmas card designed for the mantelpiece above, above a bright fire, Its chill winter aura would reinforce the comfort of the warm home scene. The evening homecoming was a favourite subject of Samuel Palmer's too. Nobody, I think, did it better, as you can see in these beautiful prints. In the Christmas one, it's an etching, the chill, moonlit, midwinter night contrasts with the glow of the firelight within the house where the table is being laid for Christmas dinner. So this brings us into the distinctive world of Palmer's English pastoral, where that old battle between the ancients and the moderns continues to be fought out. Palmer is a key figure in this period for attuning the pastoral tradition to an English idiom notwithstanding his passionate devotion to Virgil. And when he was asked to sit for the photograph um, there, um, he insisted that he be photographed with his copy of Virgil, his beloved Virgil, uh, open on his lap. Not that anyone else can actually see it. I guess it was some kind of comfort blanket to him. But he was a great champion of Virgil, notwithstanding the kinds of innovations that we associate with Palmer, which seems to draw draw his pastoral away from classic Virgilian pastoral. It's not just that his paintings return again and again to scenes of shepherds and their flocks. It is more what he does with the landscape that they inhabit. Whether he works with oils or watercolor and gouache or gum and Arabic, and we we'll are be having a look at a range of these paintings, he creates strangely shaped and compressed landforms, very heavily textured. He manipulates scale, and he stages these scenes in near-supernatural lighting. His primitive rural folk inhabit a world that has acquired, in visual terms, a formal primitivism. It's almost as though they and their landscapes have arrived on canvas or paper direct from ancient stained glass windows. This formal naivety was quite deliberate, and it developed during the years he spent living in Shoreham, Kent, in the Darrant Valley, in the middle and later 1820s and early 30s. Palmer was part of a circle known as the Ancients who cultivated an archaic style, even in dress, as you can see from Richmond's portrait of Palmer. They were all devotees of William Blake, whose own brand of pastoral, especially in the Songs of Innocence and Experience, and in his woodcuts, Blake's woodcuts to Virgil's eclogues, which we'll be looking at in a moment. This was a powerful influence on Palmer's landscapes in the critic Geoffrey Grigson's words, Blake helped Palmer not only to see, but to see religiously. Palmer in turn grounded Blake's visionary world. He lifted Blake's exquisite images of a partly classicized pastoral idyll off the illuminated page and away from pure allegory and transplanted them into the North Kent countryside. His images of shepherd and sheep still carry some of Blake's luminous visionary power and devotional ardour, but they also now live in a rich material world. The gardens are heavy with radiant apple blossom, and the fields thick with corn sheaves glimmering under a huge harvest moon. This is where Palmer can realise his beloved little dells and nooks and corners of paradise. His phrase. He creates a borderland, an English Arcadia where rural life and scenery are part myth and part historical topography. And this plays directly into the making of iconic English landscape. Palmer called this place his Valley of Vision. It's a phrase that marries the topographically specific Shoreham with the otherworldly the material with the mystical, and in so doing, he both revitalised and naturalised the pastoral genre. His most significant inspiration for rehabilitated pastoral came not directly from Virgil's texts, but from Blake's 1821 illustrations to the eclogues. And it's odd, the power that they had over him because they seemed relatively unassuming. And I put a couple up on the um, slide here. Palmer first saw these small woodcuts two or three years after their publication and a few months before he was actually introduced to William Blake in the autumn of 1824. They were to have a powerful and enduring effect. He called them perhaps the most intense gems of bucolic sentiment in the whole range of art. In many ways, their impact on him set the course for Palmer's greatest work. I'll read his um, record of his feelings on first looking at them. I sat down with Mr Blake's Thornton's Virgil woodcuts before me, thinking to give their merits my feeble testimony. I happened first to think of their sentiment, They are visions of little dells and nooks and corners of paradise, models of the exquisitest pitch of intense poetry. I thought of their light and shade, and looking upon them, I found no word to describe it. Intense depth, solemnity, and vivid brilliancy only coldly and partially describes them. There is in all such a mystic and dreamy glimmer as penetrates and kindles the inmost soul and gives complete and unreserved delight, unlike the gaudy daylight of this world. There are several points of interest here. What strikes him almost immediately is not any particular Virgilian characteristic, nor the pastoral theme, which they're supposedly illustrating, but their purely sensuous qualities. They primed his own vision, so that a year or two after seeing them, when he settled in Shoreham Village, he saw the valley landscape as so many exquisite poetic compositions of little dells and nooks and corners of paradise, dimly lit to produce that intense depth, solemnity, mystic and dreamy glimmer. As he wrote to one of his fellow ancients, George Richmond, soon after he had arrived in Shoreham, I have beheld, as in the spirit, such nooks caught in such glimpses of the perfumed and enchanted twilight of natural midsummer, as well as at some other times of day. Palmer moved to Shoreham in 1826, the year when Constable's cornfield was exhibited, of the Royal Academy, and left it around 1835. His twin mission during this period was how to revive pastoral in a local English context and how to reconcile poetic vision with landscape naturalism. He once asserted the great landscape painters used as much of literal truth as was necessary in order to make the ideal probable. And that phrase, make the ideal probable, is in quote marks, and I don't know where he got it from. The great landscape painters used as much of literal truth as was necessary in order to make the ideal probable. Two mentors jostled for the possession of Palmer's artistic soul. The popular naturalist landscape painter, John Linnell, who was effectively a kind of patron of Palmer's, and the visionary illuminator, William Blake. During the Shoreham period, Palmer was under the sway of both, sometimes more attuned to one than to the other. Thus, writing to Linnell in 1824, when he's in his uh, naturalist uh, phase, Palmer boasted, I have not entertained a single imaginative thought these six weeks. While I am drawing from nature, vision seems foolishness to me. The arms of an old rotten tree trunk are more curious than the arms of Michelangelo's Moses. And, and he executes some exquisitely beautiful um, portraits of uh, Lullingston Park and the area around Shoreham. With this extraordinary, extraordinary capacity to create almost bas relief in that moss on the um the cowshed. Yeah, you can almost reach out and touch it. But then, in a letter four years later to his fellow ancient, obviously shifting to the other visionary phase, um, uh, he reports to his friend Linnell's comment that he could, quote, get a thousand a year directly through studies of the Shoreham scenery. Palmer remarks, Though I am making studies for Mr. Linnell. I will, God help me, never be a naturalist by profession. These dichotomies, nature and art, vision and reality, preoccupied Palmer during this time. He wrote, I can't help seeing that the general characteristics of nature's beauty are in some respects opposed to those of imaginative art. And so the struggle goes on to reconcile these antagonists he always knew that the better chance of making a living from his art was to paint portraits of the English countryside. Half a century after the Shoreham period, he ruefully reflected on, a quote, that genuine village where I mused away some of my best years, designing what nobody would care for and contracting a fastidious and unpopular taste. And ironically, it's that uh, Shoreham period with these mystical paintings that are now already his, um, considered his masterpieces. When Palmer's writing about his landscapes, it's sometimes difficult to tell whether he's meaning the visionary experience or actual visual perception. For instance, he writes, we are not troubled with aerial perspective in the Valley of Vision. Is he commenting on the Shoreham Valley atmosphere, which can encourage the collapse of strict recessional plotting, Or is he simply declaring that the visionary painter really doesn't need to bother with academic technique in rendering distances? The dual nature, visionary reel, visionary stroke reel, of Palmer's Valley Pastorals is well illustrated, perhaps accidentally, in his drawing The Valley of Vision, Sepham Barn Shoreham, 1828. The two-part title itself draws attention to the hybridity. It's a view of the large old Shoreham barn that featured in other topographical sketches by Palmer in the middle ground. A group of women and children from the barn buildings seem to be bringing a bag of feed into the sheep fold. But already within the fold is another group altogether fainter, more sketchy in form and in a thin veil of white consisting of an impressively tall and dignified shepherd with his small flock. In a notebook of 1859, Palmer had asked himself the question, what must I do to attain excellence? The answer was, his answer, increase what I love. And what did he love? The list that followed included, quote, figures of antique grace and sentiment and rich picturesqueness. The faintly drawn tall shepherd certainly corresponds to this prescription The ghostly ensemble has something of a biblical look. It's distinctly Blakean in its configuration as one can see in Blake's woodcut from Thornton's Virgil. Now, what is the Dulwich sentiment? Remember the Dulwich sentiment, Palmer tells himself once or twice in his 1824 sketchbook. The Dulwich sentiment is this. Note that when you go to Dulwich, it is not enough on coming home to make recollections in which shall be united the scattered parts about those sweet fields into a sentimental and Dulwich-looking whole. No. But considering Dulwich as the gate into the world of vision, one must try, behind the hills, to bring up a mystic glimmer like that which lights our dreams. And those same hills should give us promise that the country beyond them is paradise. In other words, don't render Durridge as a simple naturalistic picturesque landscape of the Linnell type, but make it the threshold possibility of a spiritual vision. One of the faculties that Palmer shared with Blake was this curiously heightened sense of a visionary world cohabiting with the real familiar world we all occupy. Indeed, the experience seems to have happened to both of them in the same location, in Dulwich, which seems now an improbable site for heavenly epiphanies. (laughs) I apologise if anyone is... When, When Blake was about 10 years old, he had his first vision. As he reports, sauntering along by Dulwich Hill, he saw, I quote, a tree filled with angels... Bright angelic wings bespangling every bough like stars. And here we have Palmer reflecting on Dulwich as potentially the gate into the world of vision beyond whose hills is paradise. It's a little like um, that uh, moment I was talking about, I think, last week uh, in the sonnet by John Clare. Uh, when he describes a woodland in spring with an old gate flapping against its uh, its post as the entrance uh, to spring's paradise. The incongruity of banal objects as a way of opening up a world, the possibility of a world of vision. So the Dulwich sentiment is presumably that capacity, so to intensify the poetic representation of a place through lighting, and other formal strategies that the ordinary acquires an extraordinary spiritual luster. For Palmer, Dulwich and Shoreham prompted that impulse to partly transfigure familiar English landscapes into visionary places. A year or so after leaving Shoreham, Palmer married Hannah, the daughter of his mentor, John Linnell and they travel together to italy and they spend a couple of years there 1837 to 9 absence from england had two effects it made the heart grow fonder and it sharpened his focus on the precise sentimental value of its scenery yes italy had spectacular mountains quote cities and villages cresting the hills and precipices he writes home heavenly sunshine and atmosphere, but, high as is the gratification of exploring this beautiful country, those who do not feel disposed to cross the channel may comfort themselves by knowing that specimens of almost every class of beauty may be found in our island. In apparent richness, I think Kent and Devonshire have the preference of everything I've seen. We've heard these kind of patriotic sentiments before, from some of the picturesque tourists, and indeed from Constable and John Clare. In another letter home, Palmer wrote, I should enjoy to sojourn some day with you in our beautiful vales, to hide ourselves from an impertinent world in tangled orchards, to go sitting on our thyme hills, that's T H Y-M-E hills, and in our magic northern twilight to hear the village clock ticking in his grey tower. And that epitomizes Palmer's English Idyll. He's enchanted by the idea of being tucked away in tangled orchards as the twilight deepens and the silence swells with only the sound of the church clock. Similar sentiments and imagery come in another letter home a few months later as Palmer dreams of a kind of English pastoral essence. We shall together thread the gardened labyrinths of Kent and on the timey downs by twilight listen to the distant shepherd's pipe or village bells. Palmer's most distinctive English landscapes invite one to indulge that impulse to retreat into his twilight nooks and dells. In that 1859 list of things he loved and wished to foster in his painting, Palmer included the following. Intense depth of shadow and color, mystery, and infinite going inativeness. That strange coinage, going inativeness, corresponds to those beloved little dells and nooks and corners of paradise that he identified in Blake's woodcuts. This is the pure spirit of English pastoral for Palmer seclusion from the impertinent world. It's not necessarily a matter of herdsmen and flocks in the picture. It is the quality of the landscape configurations. In order to achieve this going inativeness, Palmer harmonizes the representation of landscape forms with his narrative subject, so that the trees and hills, fields and churches diverge from topographical realism, scale and accurate perspective in favor of a crafted antique naivety and that mystic and dreamy glimmer that he's so enthused about in Blake's woodcuts. And this is the manner of that strange series of six drawings known as the Oxford Sepias, painted in 1825, the year before he moved to Shoreham. All six are scenes depicting landscapes at those times of day, most likely to generate the mystic glimmer that Palmer sought, early morning, late twilight, full moon. Early morning can serve as an example and we we'll spend a bit of time here. He attached a quotation to the picture, four lines from John Lydgate's medieval poem, The Complaint of the Black Night. I rose anon and thought I would be gone into the wood to hear the birdies sing when that misty vapour was agone and clear and fair was the morning. The limpid early morning light shows a world oddly compressed into a shallow perspective of woodland path, cornfield, cottages and distant hills. Quite clearly in this landscape, quote, we are not troubled with aerial perspective in the Valley of Vision. Forms are rounded into cushiony shapes. The plump hair, the umbrella canopy of the big oak standing amidst the billowing fields, the beehive cottage roofs echoing the natural swell of the landscape, It's like the benign surging of a sea. Palmer once described journeying through similar countryside and evoked similar terms. A quote, riding between the Surrey sandbanks, lapped and folded in by pastoral crofts and overhanging orchards. Right in the centre and heart of this exquisitely upholstered countryside, a small group of people sit at ease in a dell, presumably listening to the song of the birds on the twig above them. The stiff, archaic style matches the period of the verse quotation, and this would have been quite deliberate. In a notebook entry, Palmer remarked that when nature is represented, it should be, I quote, most simple of style. What would have pleased men in earlier ages when poetry was at its acme, and yet men lived in a simple pastoral way? Early morning is simple of style and yet very richly wrought. Everything is pushed forward in defiance of perspective and proper distancing as if to gorge the viewer with a still-life cornucopia of landscape delicacies. Emphatically inked outlines isolate each of the landscape forms and each form has its own discrete texture and tone so that the effect is like that of marquetry's complex inlay of differently-grained woods. It has the mysterious, bewitching quality of a closed world, an exquisite miniaturising of an English landscape. And it's a demonstration of Palmer's maxim that bits of nature are generally much improved by being received into the soul. This retreat into mystery is both a visual and an imaginary one. A landscape can invite the viewer to recede into tangled nooks of cosy twilight gloom. It can also lure the imagination into a temporal recess, so that the forms and figures draw one back into mellow ancient English history, the dark ages. Or it can invite retreat into an apparent timelessness with the unchanging figure of the rustic herdsman. Pastoral becomes the past, an ideal refuge from the present. Eventually, in Palmer's later life, Shoreham itself, or the memory of Shoreham, became that recessed idyll, that epitome of going inativeness. And nowhere did that idyll of a mellow English pastoral surface more captivatingly than in his large watercolour, the bellman, and this is what I'm finishing with. The subject comes from Milton's poem, Il Penseroso*. In that poem, the speaker dismisses vain deluding joys and dreams of evocatively solemn settings in which to indulge his melancholy mood to the full before, in weary age, he retires to the peaceful hermitage. One of these settings, evocatively solemn settings, is a removed place, and I quote, where glowing embers through the room teach light to counterfeit a gloom, far from all resort of mirth, save the cricket on the hearth, or the bellman's drowsy charm to bless the doors from nightly harm. In formal terms, the bellman seems a long way from that Blakean idiom of the Shoreham village scenes, like coming home from church. The intense compression has gone so has the stylization of forms. The sentiment is somewhat the same, but without the visionary intensity, it relaxes more into sentimentality. The lighting, too, has a greater realism than the mystic glow of the Shoreham landscape, is nonetheless captivating, at least to this viewer. The warmth of those last gleams of the sunset reflected in a cottage window or two blends with the twilight stealing up from below the horizon and the firelight or lamplight from the cottage door. Twilight is a kind of softly illuminated darkness, a midway stage, and, as Palmer observed, increasing gloom sometimes enforces the sentiment of exuberance by giving more play to the imagination. If any single painting could be said to epitomise Palmer's pastoral essence, it's this, I think. It's a village scene, but the conventional pastoral element is there in the foreground presence of the slumbering cattle. They are not penned into a bar or railed off from the human domain, but sleep on a cushion of land bordered by a low hedge, and they could as easily stroll down the village street as any of the human inhabitants. The scene has that mystic and dreamy glimmer that pa- Palmer had so loved in Blake's pastoral woodcuts, stimulating the imagination to wander in those tempting nooks and corners. As the shadows thicken, the mystery heightens under the influence of the bellman's drowsy charm. Remember that dream of Palmer's while in Italy to hide ourselves from the impertinent world in tangled orchards. Look at this couple here. In fact, I'll just blow it up. It's an image of utter security protected by the bellman from nightly harm on a warm evening embowered in domestic serenity. This is underwritten by the handling. The simple creeper-clad porch is constructed from a dense tangle of lines and brushstrokes and the man and woman are woven of the same graphic process, formally assimilated into their shelter as a single organic whole. This is an English nook that has slipped into the past in two senses. The village belongs to a pre-industrial age when the bellman would make his sunset round to reassure the villagers that all's well, but it's also a scene from Palmer's personal past history. I'm very glad you like my Bellman, he wrote to a friend. It is a breaking out of village fever long after contact. A dream of that genuine village where I mused away some of my best years. It's a memory of Shoreham half a century before when his village was seen as a natural organism. Human and animals share the same rhythms of work and rest and now families are gathering back in their homes like the cattle and preparing to retire. In the first of these lectures, for those who were here, we heard Jane Austen's Emma, sighing with pleasure at the sight of Donwell Abbey set in its landscape. And I quote: "It was a sweet view, sweet to the eye and the mind. English verdure, English culture, English comfort." And it's appropriate to rehearse that here. This time, we're not viewing an aristocratic estate, but a twilight country village. But the sentiments might be the same. What Palmer has crafted is sweet to the eye and the mind, the verdure and comfort of a distinctively English rural village culture. Here we enter seclusion without desolateness, as Palmer described his painting. The ground heaves well and is rich enough in pasture and the village is sheltered in its wooded nest. The scene, he wrote, has an unutterable going in This watercolour was one of Palmer's very last works, painted in 1881, the year of his death. A dream of that genuine village, he called it, in a phrase that reverberates with all the rich complexities of Pastoral's imagined reality. Thank you.